The Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 63. Deleted Scenes 2020. Hello everyone, I'm Ken Moss and welcome to the annual Exton Moss Experiment Deleted Scenes Clip Show. This is a selection of all the interesting bits off the cutting room floor from the past 12 months, and we start with a clip that was edited out of episode 41, our Doctor Who series 12 review. Well, let's just have a, a little recap of what we thought of episodes 1 to 6, just very quickly, and particularly episode 5, because that really plays into the rest. So prior to going into the, the final slew, I was massively disappointed by episode 5. I like Joe Martin's portrayal. But actually, there was no plot whatsoever. It was very much a setup episode. Whereas I have to say that I did quite enjoy episode five. I thought that I could gloss over all the lack of any real story because it was such um it was nice to be surprised at every turn and, and wonder what was coming next. Now that we're at the end of it, yes. So I can, I can fully see why you were, you were disappointed with it. You were surprised by stuff in the episode five. It wasn't blindingly obvious that she was going to turn out to be another doctor and or oh, no nothing like that but it was just the fact that they were sort of getting ahead of ourselves really the whole of this series has been mining the past and little tropes and things that we've had over the course of the past 15 years have all of a sudden been stuffed into one episode as a sort of nostalgia trip i agree there was no real story but it was nice to have a, a halfway point through a series a lot of little nods to the future. This is what we're setting up for you for the rest of the run. The way it was done, it wasn't particularly original, but it was, to me, quite pleasant to watch. I was vaguely excited by the fact that we might have something that was nodding back to the past and also throwing us off the scent a bit. I don't agree. We're, you're watching a, a drama series. There should be an element of plot. Um, this, this was Waters of Mars for me. Yeah, which is another one that I enjoy. I really like Waters of Mars. But doesn't have a plot. Um, Nothing. It's result. You don't find out what the weird wet thing is. Um, there's a whole lot of sub carry on jokes about male nurses, um, and then banging on about the sanctity of the web of time and wrecking it all at the end by saving people who should have died. No, it, it was a it was a plotless mess that is redeemed if you prepare it, prepared to let it be by the fact that it looks quite good. I'm not saying it's an outstanding episode. It was just, it was quite enjoyable oh, to watch. But I think on the back... For the right, of, right reasons. Well, on the back of what we've had, frankly, I think we're coming into Series 12 with a Series 11 hangover. So anything is better than that. But moving on, have you been watching Star Trek Picard? No, we're waiting until they're, they're all finished oh. and then we're going to binge on them. I've heard very mixed reviews of it. Some people love it. Some people hate it. It's not as gripping as Discovery, but they are they're doing sort of woven through it is something different with the Borg. But I will say this: this will mean nothing to you. But the opening sixty seconds of episode five concerns Borg surgery. I was nearly sick. You will not be. You have a better stomach for that sort of thing than I do. But uh, it's quite graphic in places. Um, it'll be useful to to flag that up to Alan beforehand. Episode five, opening sixty seconds. That's just the. You won't miss any story because it's all explained later on. Get him to go and make you a gin during that. Oh, he doesn't know how to mix gin properly. Oh dear, Alan. No, no. We need to teach you. I brought you into the fold. 
This is a brief clip from our second Brexit special and segues away from the Alan Clark Diaries and into the world of pottery. Uh, as I say, spitting image has ruined politics, really, from the 1980s onwards by endowing politicians with a level of... Oh, look at those beryl cups. Aren't they wonderful? Are they called beryl? Yeah. I was just thinking, though, those those green cups are 70s and 80s institutional... I've got some in my cupboard. It just reminds me of school. The, the teachers always used to brought out of a huge urn... And then have those every... Anyway, uh, we're getting started. So back to the Anne Clark Diaries. During our episode on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, we drifted into a discussion on poetry appreciation, which, for those who know, will make perfect sense. That does very much echo my feelings on poetry. There's almost none of it I like. I've really tried over the years to, to get into poetry. There are fragments now and then that I do like, but I... I was given a poetry book um, mm. last year, and it's it's full of romantic poetry. There are snatches of it that are very good and emotive, and a lot of it is not, I'm afraid. Um, but I feel the same way about Shakespeare. I Shakespeare is revered, and unfortunately, because vast chunks of it were rammed line by line, over-analysed when I was in English at school. It sort of knocked any life out of it whatsoever. I've kind of rediscovered Shakespeare. I was exactly the same when I was at school. And when we did our O-levels, we were streamed. So if you were top stream for science, then you couldn't be, couldn't be top stream for arts and, and all of that. So, um, and I think science and languages went together. Anyway, uh, we, there were certain subjects that you could take where you could do either the O-level or the AO, which is a, a part way to the, um, to the A-level. And I took that for French and maths. And it was possible to do it for English literature. But because I was already doing two of them, I couldn't do, do a third. So I, I did the O-level and there was an, another group that did the AO. Now, for the O-level, you only had to do two books. The AO did six. But you had to do Shakespeare. The one we got was Henry V which is almost his longest play. The only one that's longer is Hamlet. And it is an incredibly tedious historical mm. of not a particularly interesting king. There's Agincourt in the middle of it. That's it. And it feels like it goes on for weeks. The second book that we did was Chaucer's General Prologue. So written in Middle English and not even one of the tales, just a list of the people yeah. travelling. So two unbelievably dull books. The AO group, to the ones who were more interested in it, the ones that you thought wouldn't need their interest triggering, got Macbeth, which is actually quite a fun play. They got 1984. They got one of the, the Canterbury Tales. It might be in The Pardoner or something like that. They got Poetry of Wilfred Owen, which I could live without. And Northanger Abbey, I think. But but some, some decent mm. books, which I think would have been much more sensible to stimulate the interest in the, the, the O-level group who were theoretically less interested in the subject. I actually, and for AO French, it was French lit and we did one book. And I found that much, much, much more entertaining than English lit because we did um, Le Tranger by uh, Albert Camus. It, it's quite miserable, but it, it's the one that uh, the Cure song Killing an Arab was Oh, yes, was based yeah, on. yeah. And Camus is actually quite a good author. The Plague is better than The Stranger, but. With all three of those books, it was basically reading something in a foreign language mm. because even the Middle English needed pretty much a word-for-word -word translation. Shakespeare, 
much of that needed word-for-word translation and it was just unbelievably dull and put me off Shakespeare for years and years and years and years until I went to see Macbeth with Paul Darrow and Pamela Salem. Which we only realised that we've both seen the same thing, yes. And that reawakened a degree of interest. Uh, And when I was early 90s in in Dorset, there was um, Open Air Shakespeare that used to be put on in Brownsea Island and my household would go and watch this usually with a drink or two. And that, and that was quite entertaining. But yeah, school put me off Shakespeare for years. Looping back to... I was going to say, this whole conversation has uh, been because of one reference to poetry by the Vogon captain. In episode 56, we watched Doctor Who, the time meddler, and reminisced about our birthday episodes. Thing, things like this, every time I, I watch it, I'm reminded of how good it is. But then I'll forget about that and not watch it again for ages. Other stories I don't watch for a while and then watch again and realise why I don't watch it for a while. Underworld. That was particularly bad. Um, We've just recorded uh, our first podcast with my friend Paul, uh, who has guested on an episode with us. And we, uh, as a sort of... We inflicted his birthday episode on him, which is Underworld episode two. two. Oh, it was awful. There was nothing in that to, to grip at all. Me and you have watched some pretty poor television and were fairly forgiving of most Doctor Who, but that was bad. When we did birthday episodes for, for us, we got the Crotons and Invasion of Time. Yeah, we were spoiled, really. Yes. yes. Later in the episode, we recorded a memorial to Geoffrey Palmer, Sean Connery and John Sessions, which involved an inevitable segue. Weren't there characters from Cheers that occasionally cropped up in in Frasier? I'd be amazed if they didn't, but again, I'd be lying if I said I I knew. But it does sound fairly unlikely that they didn't from time to time. I've got vague recollections of Kirstie Alley turning up at some point. Frasier was never something that I religiously watched. Now, the guy who was head writer, script editor, uh, very much behind the feel of the comedy of Frasier, is a a fellow called Joe Keenan, who has written a, a series of just about the funniest books I've ever read. They are absolutely brilliant. There's only three in the series. They're each absolutely fantastic. Campus Christmas, I mean, massive tip of the hat to, to Woodhouse because they, they're classic farces with the, the two lead characters. Well, there are three lead characters. Two are two gay best friends and their scheming, blackmailing, frenemy character. And one of the lads, he's a lyricist, and he works with a, with a composer who is the, the voice of reason throughout the whole thing. They are absolutely hilarious books. I, I, when you get a bit of time to read, start with Putting on the Ritz. The first one has me saying about how much I love them, and I can't remember which one's first. It's either Blue Heaven or Putting on the Ritz. Oh, Joe Keenan isn't listed on Wikipedia. Oh, uh, there's no writer. There's a football. Oh, there's a writer. Yeah, there's also a footballer, or a thermodynamicist. <laughs> How about that for a job description? Yeah, Blue Heaven is the first one. Blue Heaven, putting on the Ritz, and then My Lucky Star about, yeah, 10 years later. What else did you do? Desperate Housewives, Glee, Hot in Cleveland, The Odd Couple. None of which I've seen. Desperate Housewives is quite fun. Glee is the sort of thing that would make me kick nine bells out of the telly. I um, don't think that's really my... It's sort of modern fame, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, was Desperate Housewives the same sort of stable as Sex and the City? Yeah. You see, I really enjoyed Sex and the City. Desperate Housewives is sort of... It's kind of like a cross between the real Housewives of L.A. and Twin Peaks. Ooh. Twin Peaks I was a big fan of. Oh, Twin Peaks I hated. 
I think I was just at the time everybody was watching. I got swept up with the hype. Yeah, no, it, Twin Peaks is the perfect example of I'm going to make this incomprehensible. Therefore, it must be a work of genius. I'll make it so, so that it's not possible to understand. So therefore, read whatever you like into it. Throw all this weird shit in the way. Therefore, I'm a genius because I can't be bothered to explain anything. I hated Twin Peaks. It's pure. It, it's like Pulp Fiction. It is pure Emperor's New Clothes. It lives by its reputation. And I must it, admit, the I've not seen it. one since it was first on. I must admit, I do hate anything that is. If you don't understand this, you cannot be part of our club. I suspect or, now that is how it's viewed. Yes, uh, and the oh, the only reason that you don't understand it is because you're not clever enough. Well, I'm sorry, five degrees, two doctorates, there's nothing wrong with my brain. I quite enjoy not being spoon-fed every bit of information that you need to be able to work out what's going on in a TV program. I like TV programs that make me think, but TV programs where they just throw random shit at you because they're being artsy and trying to be clever, that that's not clever. That's just being fucking irritating. I think exactly the same about um, most of Quentin Tarantino's work. I think that's pure Emperor's New Clothes. Oh, I agree with you on that. Um, particularly, I was really enjoying up until about halfway from Dust Till Dawn. And I'm actually quite invested in this film. And then all of a sudden, it's like two films badly welded together. Yes, and, and it's actually the second half that I enjoy rather than the first. I like all the vampire bits rather than the, the the kidnappy cops and robbers bit. Whereas I was the other way around. I think it was, it was probably the fact that it jarred so badly halfway through the film that I just thought these are two completely different styles. Yeah, I, can't, I, I can't tell you. If it had been one or the other fine but not that mishmash but i did i must admit i did quite enjoy pulp fiction no i hate it. It, it it's very pretty but it doesn't have a plot well i think that's the sort of point isn't it it's a collection of set pieces rather than a I, I, yes I, I i realized that that's what he was trying to do i think it's a really lazy thing not to bother writing a script or to write a script and not bothering putting the plot in. it's the same same problem i have with waters of mars oh you're harsh about waters of mars i really quite like that it looks pretty but it's a situation. It's not a plot. There is no resolution of that that plot. It's just, oh, weird shit's happening. We'll run away. Which is pretty much how I feel about Planet of the Dead, the one that came before it. Um, less so, because with Planet of the Dead, you know what's going on. You there is an enemy. You know what the enemy is. You know what it's all. You know what it's all about. And the the whole plot is about escaping from it. That I don't really have a problem with. I mean, Planet of the Dead is a little bit dull, but I. I quite like it. Waters of Mars, you don't get any explanation of what the enemy is. You don't get any exploration of what's going on. It's just, uh, oh, look, there's weird shit. We don't understand it. We don't know what it is. Run away and, uh, and let's get out of here. No plot resolution at all. Whereas Planet of the Dead, the escape is the entirety of the plot in itself because the thing that you're uh, escaping from has a, a background and an explanation and you know what it is. That doesn't happen in Water Waters of Mars. Yeah, fair does, I'll give you that. That is true. If it had been, oh, right, this is this weird water monster that we've come across, come across before, and this is what, what happens, and there's no escaping from it, and we just run away. Actually, Saranga is, is very much the same. It's, here's this thing that we can't, we're not going to be able to defeat, so we just need to distance ourselves from it. I mean, I, I was chucking it out the airlock rather than running away, but it's, it's basically the same thing. In a file archiving session over the summer, the very first test for an Exomos experiment title sequence was found and is markedly different from the one that we use. This was recorded on the 25th of July 2018 and is the very first material recorded for the podcast. 
The Exton Moss Experiment, an expedition into the television archives, featuring Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Quatermass 2. While we were re-watching Doctor Who the Tenth Planet, we drifted into discussion about recolorized black and white episodes. So what would you like, which of the existing black and white stories would you like to uh, colorized first? Certainly the first and second. I think it would be a good place to start with on An Earthly Child. But I think the Dalek stories, I think, would look brilliant in colour. They would just give it... Because I've, I've never been... I think I've been ruined by the fact that I saw Invasion Earth 2150 with Peter Cushing before I saw Dalek's Invasion mm. of Earth. So when I finally got around seeing the black and white version, it was very slow in comparison. Yeah. Uh, what else in colour? Obviously, if it existed, Marco Polo. Reign of Terror, I think, would be quite nice. But again, you're missing a couple of episodes there. So I don't and know. The, and the animation of, of that really isn't great. I've not seen the anim- I've not seen the animation of part four of this, so I'm quite looking forward to it. But I, I believe and that the Su- Susan's almost unrecognisable. I know there was quite a lot of flat directed towards it at the time. And is it the one where Hartnell looks though he's got about thirty million teeth? Yes, that, that I have. I've seen screen grabs on little clips. Yes. Um, so what would your choices be for recolored? Tomb. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yes. Because, again, as with animation, you're going to want to do the, the minimum number of episodes mm. possible. So you're probably looking at a, a four-part. The arc would look quite good. During recording for our Tonic Screwdriver podcasts on Haysmith's Elements Gins, I had a momentary loss of diction that Simon cheerfully pointed out. Number one was nice but quite plain. Two wasn't genital and was absolutely dire. Would you like to just repeat that? Because that came across as number two wasn't genital. When I think you were probably aiming for number two wasn't gin at all. (laughs) I shall try that again. The antidote to the edition where Simon made us watch The Corridor People was originally something different to the Mr. Hell Show episode that we ended up watching. And although we recorded an intro, we unfortunately found that the disc wouldn't play. Well... As an extra to the uh, the Corridor People episode, there's a little episode of something that you might enjoy that we could watch and comment on. And this is something that I've been talking about for a little while. It's an American series. It's a cartoon series called Drawn Together. Right. Where's this bit going? It's about a cartoon version of Big Brother. So there are pastiches of classic cartoon characters so there's a superman equivalent there's a betty boop equivalent there's a disney princess there's a uh, a computer game character and they're put together into a big brother house it's very very entertaining could you fancy an episode of that how long are they on for mm, about 20 minutes i think yes i would love an episode of that it is slightly strange can't be any worse than this run vt In November 2020, BBC local radio stations began a series called BBC Uploads, in which members of the public could send in original pieces of work that they'd created during lockdown. Mine was the very first piece to be included on BBC Radio Lancashire, and was broadcast at 9pm on the 4th of November on The John Gilmore Show. John Gilmore. BBC Radio Lancashire. 
Now let's have a, a rummage through the BBC Upload folder. You can send your stuff to BBC Upload. We're after whatever you create, as long as it's all your own work. Upload, of course, your front door to the BBC. No age limits here, incidentally. Whatever you create, we want to see it and uh, we want to hear it. And if we like it, we'll use it. Also, as well, if you're a photographer or an artist, you might think, what would you do with that? Well, we do have social media platforms that we can put it on for you. So uh, get in touch, bbc.co.uk slash upload and our first guest this evening is ken moss ken is a voice artist from richton working on a, a big project at the minute i think aren't you ken i have I've got a couple on the go at the minute uh, i've got a, i'm working on a, a 10 book fantasy series for an author in oregon uh, that's set on a fictional spanish island uh, but i've also got a, an oral history project that i've just started for hyman borough council it's uh, comprising interviews with local people about the Memories going up in and around Oswaldswistle, and that's uh, all tied in with the renovations going on at Riddings Park. Uh, and I think uh, we touched on that on Saturday Breakfast a few weeks ago, where they were looking for people to go along to Accrington Market and tell their stories. Was there a good reaction to that? Uh, we have. We've had quite a few people come along. Uh, they've put their names forward. We're primarily looking for older people who've got a, a very lengthy uh, memory of growing up around Oswaldswistle and Accrington. The format is largely inspired by Radio Lancashire's own Century Speaks, which was a, a project around 2000 as an oral history of, of Lancashire. Um, yeah, it's, so it'll follow very much that format. It's funny how many people still talk about that these days. I think it was uh, the year 2000 that came out, wasn't it, there or thereabouts? It was. It was a national yeah. project. And uh, yeah. your own Gerald Jackson very kindly gave me a full set of recordings. So I'm lucky oh, to Oh, excellent. Well. Uh, with the recordings of the 10 books that you're recording, are you sort of narrating those? Yeah, I've been interested in audiobooks ever since I was a, a little boy. It's something my mum got me into. She bought me a Parkworks magazine. I used to get a, a cassette with it, and it was a read-along cassette once a fortnight. So I've always been interested in that. Set up my own business in 1999 and been gainfully employed ever since. But the audiobook, I prefer to do as sort of enhanced readings, if you will, with music and effects. It just draws the listener in a little bit more than a straight book. Yeah, I presume it brings it to life a little bit more, doesn't it, that? I hope so. I, I like to think so. I'll get good feedback anyway. Good, good stuff. What did you upload to our uh, BBC Upload folder then, uh, Ken? Uh, this is something that um, I've always been a fan of Doctor Who. And throughout the series, throughout the history, there have been real-life poems scattered about and quoted. And I just thought it would be a good exercise to keep me match fit at home if I, re- if I tracked down all those poems and recorded them. I've set them to music. This is actually an original one. It's inspired by Matt Smith's very last episode. There was a fragment of poem that they found in a Christmas cracker in that story. So I have taken that and written an entire poem around those two lines. And it's basically the history of Doctor Who in poem. Well, well, let's have a listen to the poetry of Doctor Who. Thoughts on a Clock by Eric Ritchie Jr. and Ken Moss. The adventure starts at one. The universe waits for you. Open the box, therein discover stories old and new. Those first minutes they were cautious, rewriting not one line. The hour wore thin and friends looked on as lives did intertwine. Time ticked by and all too soon the face was showing too. Renewed and strange and yet the chime was reassuring you. Seconds passed like a carefree hobo running all the while. But freedom is only temporary when sentence follows a trial. 
three brought a spearhead of colourful flair. Masterly schemes, a dandy debonair. Down-to-earth units of timely advice. Returned stolen moments would come at a price. Four's bohemian style skipped in. Sweet little children and a winning grin. Segments of time with a girl's best friend, while a mortal foe prepared for the end. Five fell upon us with a pleasant open face, for interesting travels in time and in space. Brave-hearted sacrifice, a young woman's boon, and the bell struck again, not a moment too soon. Six arrived brightly, so bold and so proud, chiming eloquently, clear, firm and loud. Unwanted hiatus meant momentum faltered, times change and the clock face inevitably altered. Seven a mystery, a champion of time, scheming yet playful, a juggler and mime. Broad new adventures that many wouldn't dare, over in a shot the ending laid bare. Eight passed by quickly, with style and with grace. The blink of an eye that saved the human race. A healing physician that gave way to war, showing us a life that we had never known before. Nine rose out of fire and of flame, a moment filled with consequential blame. The mark of a wolf in time saved the day, and the hand soon indicated change was on the way. Ten was double-quick, four beats to the bar. Crisis averted, yet a victory too far. The sound of drums heralded faces from the past. No one wants to go when time speeds by so fast. Eleven like a madman, a question in plain sight. Unconventional food and a curious crack of light. A river running through it, a final Christmas morn. Confusing times for all concerned, a young old man reborn. And now it's time for one last bow. Like all your other selves, Eleven's hour is over now. The clock is striking twelves. What a big finish. The uh, work of my first guest this evening on BBC Upload, uh, Ken Moss from Ozzle Twistle. Very interesting, that, Ken. And as you say, you know, you bring pieces uh, alive with the music and the effects, don't you? I'd like to think so. Strangely enough, I've never actually been a big fan of poetry. Uh, But I do find that if you put music underneath that's complementary to it, it does bring it to life a little bit. Yeah, and it's interesting how many... You know, poems uh, start off as poetry and then they're turned into songs, aren't they, uh, at a, a later date? Someone puts a bit of music and starts singing the words. It does, and uh, I think there was a, there's one band in the 90s, I believe, Crash Test Dummies, they did a newspaper article to music, uh, and it was a smash hit. So, strangest <laughs> yeah, things. We are. Read your front pages. Uh, tell us a little bit about your podcast, because you have a podcast as well. I do. Um, this is a purely for fun. I run a podcast with my uh, very old mate, Simon Exton, 
called the Exton Moss Experiment. And it's basically, this is stemmed from us having weekends together where we just stick on very old television, watch it, stuff that you'd never see repeated, drink lots of gin and have a bit of a laugh, really. And uh, we've now got about 8,000 listeners around the world to this podcast. We're glad we entertain people. We enjoy doing it very much. We've no plans to stop. Well, well, you carry on and, uh, you know, you keep creating there, Ken. Ken Moss joining us this evening, my first guest, voiceover artist from Rishton. The Box of Delights was our Christmas 2020 episode, and by the end of it, we were both audibly affected by drink. This extended sequence includes conversation in full flow. So what do we think of the very end of it? It was all a dream. Yeah, it was all giant polar wank, frankly. The whole it was all a dream has always been a phenomenal cock-out. Cop-out. No, let's say cock-out. <laughs> Whatever works best. <laughs> Fucking awful. It's Bobby Ewing. It's beyond appalling. I can't begin to say how disappointed I was with that ending. He wakes up on the train. He's met by his... Is she his guardian? And then they see the two henchmen on the platform as if the dream is somehow a premonition of reality. So did he meet those two henchmen on the train? Were they really trying to swindle him at the card game? Or was it just his hallucination? It's a massively unsatisfying ending. I can't believe that six very, very long half-hour episodes have been rewarded with that big pile of shite i would love things to be different i really would but it bored the arse off me all six episodes so i was really hoping for a doctor who episode six rescue and i didn't get one but how often do you get an episode six rescue when episode two to five are dull as shit i can't actually think of one We've had enough ones where they've been padded. It doesn't help that Patrick Chowton's in it. But my God, he was wonderful to watch. He was by he was, far and away was, the best he thing was in it. A, Wasn't he in three episodes? And the only episode he was really in was episode six. True. When he turned up and said, oh, okay, um, I gave the box to you and you've royally fucked everything up. <laughs> Give it back to me. I will sort everything out and I'll go and find somebody else who can actually do what I wanted them to do in the first place. I'm sorry to everyone out there that really, really loved this, but uh, I did not. There were no beautiful childhood memories dredged up, even though I saw it on transmission. Simon, I know you were quite a bit older when this was first on. You didn't didn't see it, did you? First time around, no. I first saw it about 10 years ago. I don't remember it being terrible. But it's not a classic, even for people who lived (laughs) through it. The final piece of material was originally recorded for episode 12, where we paid tribute to the producer Derek Sherwin, but it was left out as we were already considerably overrunning. So here is an unused commentary on episode 1 of Doctor Who, The Mind Robber. Okay, so we're now on to Doctor Who the Mind Robber, episode one. And this is continuing our Derek Sherwin theme. Um, a bit backwards, really. We've gone from him being producer in the War Games to, Back to director, director of this particular episode of The Mind Robber. And this is the end of The Dominators. 
Where there's the whole lava heading towards the TARDIS thing. And photographic blow-up TARDIS walls. Zoe almost wearing a costume. That's a nice uh, flashback to the Daleks. It is. Um, and more recently, uh, the wheel in space. Mm. Just while we've got a lull, a self-imposed lull, gin review. We are on J.J. Whitley's Violet Gin, and it's superb. It is absolutely lovely. I'm having it with full-fat tonic. I'm having it neat. It's a very much a go-to gin, for certainly for me. I'm going to dive in straight with five Bernard's. Pretty much any of the Violet Gins get five Bernard's from me. I think the Bow Gin is a, a Bow Violet Gin is a five plus, but this is absolutely lovely. Can't possibly use that because it'll trigger us into an entirely new story. Now he complained about this one um, because they were—I can't remember the, the exact details. They weren't being paid for it being a three-hander, even though the three of them carried the entire episode. They weren't being paid pro rata for it. So Patrick Chapman actually complained about this, yeah. and and they won. I mean, no, that's a nice that's shot. A nice that's a lovely shot. shot. Yeah. The is covered in lava. And actually, the, the transition between the real universe and the, uh, the land of fiction was a nicely done effect. Oh, the cat suit. She's changed. It's quite spangly. And the doctor's grown his hair. He really is compelling, isn't mm. he? It's slightly odd that picture their Homer tempting them out because of any companions up until this point, they're the only two that are voluntarily along. Mm. All the others sort of stumble into it by accident or whatever. It's also slightly odd that he's more interested in a picture of a Scottish heath than her in that spangled cat suit when she turns around. Because every instance so far that he's got to be a sort of red-blooded male, he's uh, jumped at the chance to be. Yeah, and a lot of the scenes that he has with Victoria kind of make it obvious that they were having a relationship. Mm. That bit in the Ice Warriors where, where they're larking about with the massage chair and he sees oh, whatever the lead scientist's name is. And he, he does the whole, would you ever wear an outfit like that? With a leer in his voice. Um, and she's, we will change the subject now. Jesus Christ. Brace, brace. Who designed that cat suit for her? Oh my word, Even when it's just him in a basic set and a sound effect, he's still compelling. Compelling. That's the trouble with cleaning these things up. You can see the edges of the set. I mean, very much of their time, but the white rob- robots are very effective. Yeah, they are. They've tried in Big Finish to sort of resurrect them. It's not a surprise. It didn't really work. It's not a surprise. Well, that proves it, doesn't it? A city like that doesn't just disappear, does it? But it is out there! It's not, so you know it isn't. 
I can't work out whether her hair is real or a wig. If you can't work it out, does it matter? Not in the slightest. They've done well to sustain this episode for this long. When nothing has happened. Nothing has happened at all. It kind of reminds me of Space Museum, where the first episode is absolutely brilliant and innovative and completely compelling. The rest of the story doesn't really make up to to the point where it almost ends up as it's a a one-episode story leading into a... Yeah, three parts. Three or four episode story. Oh, that's a nice story. The TARDIS is painted white. Mm. Think of me. Think of the TARDIS. They are the only real things here. And that positive negative effect mm. works well. His kilt is suddenly very short. The white robot guns, the energy beams don't centre on their guns. You know, here we are, one episode in. To the mind robber. Derek Sherwin's directorial debut in Doctor Who. Yeah. And there's no plot to this. And, and yet, no sets. We have done and no guest cast. And it's watch it. utterly compelling. Look at her false eyelashes. I mean, that's 60s right on the screen in front of you. And this whole spinning and exploding TARDIS thing just works brilliantly. The spinning console. Oh, good heavens. I see you don't get an equivalent shot up Fraser Hines' kilt, which is just sexist. I love the Mind Dropper episode one. Are we a tad distracted? I'll take that as a yes. Yeah, we are. I stand corrected. Derek Sherman was script editor on this. I thought he directed it. Well, I mean, it's a very compelling piece of television. Even without the final sequence with the TARDIS console. Which is very compelling. But for men of a certain persuasion. Or ladies of a certain persuasion. So true, let's not be true. Sexist about yes, let's, let's not be sexist on this of all days. Very glad you enjoyed that aspect of it. Mind Dropper episode one is not even meant to be there. It's just, it's a filler episode. It shouldn't. But it's a filler episode that works really, really well. It's a three-hander with almost no sets and almost no plot and an awful lot of the the principals just acting at each other and doing a really superb job of it. And it comes back to what we were saying earlier about Jodie Whittaker and lots of the other principals that have been in the show. By the time it was a few years in, it was obviously a big deal. Nobody was going to get a principal role unless they could prove that they could do it. I, I remember listening to Wendy Padbury saying that one of her technical interviews for the the part of Zoe was a script that it required her to go through a whole, a whole series of emotions. And they filmed it purely on her eyes. Now that's clever. By this stage, everybody who went in as a principal role had proved their worth through some very tough te- technical interviews as being capable of doing the job. So the fact that they put in good performances, it's fantastic to watch, but it shouldn't actually be a big surprise. 
even bear that, bearing that in mind, that was a really good, well-played episode. Well, Mind Robber and uh, I think Mind Robber and Dominators are two of the stories with the shortest episodes. That was just over 20 minutes long. Yeah. And I think there are some episodes of the Mind Robber that are under 20 they minutes. They are, they're 19 minutes, even so. To grip an audience 50 years down the line with 20 minutes of nothing, I don't think... That's bad going. I, I think it's superb. It, uh, and the whole Mind Robber is a, is a story I've always really enjoyed. When it was just originally the first five that survived, Mind Robber was always my... Mind Robber or Seeds of Death was always my favourite. Now, OK, you've got Tomb of the Cybermen, you've got Enemy of the World, you've got... Web all, of Fear. Almost the entirety of Web of Fear, which we'll do at some point because it's Web of Fear. You've not seen it, have you? No. Calling we, yourself a who fan. Well, no, that means we need to podcast it as live. Oh dear, what a shame. That may even be a double episode. Although, actually, judging by the um, the last couple of episodes we've seen, so War Games 10, Mind Robber 1, there's been a huge amount of time where we've just stared at the screen, absolutely transfixed, and forgotten the fact that there was a microphone here. So, sorry listeners... <laughs> I'd love to say we weren't ignoring you, but we kind of were. We were, we were yeah. really distracted. It looks really easy. All you've got to do is sit and watch Doctor Who for four episodes and talk all the way through it. Yeah, it, and it's the second bit that's the difficult bit because <laughs> I have seen Mind Robber God knows how many times. Um, we're talking about doing the War Machines at some point and I will just... It, it's one of my very favourite stories. I'm going to have to keep prodding you on that one, aren't I? Utterly transfixed. I shall, I shall try and I'll endeavour to round off this podcast. Because uh, this whole sequence that we've been listening to and commentating on has been in memory of Derek Sherwin, who is the penultimate surviving producer from the 20th century. And he oversaw a really pivotal point in the show's history. It was the end of the 60s. It was the end of black and white episodes. It was the end of a very successful TARDIS team, particularly between Patrick Troughton and Fraser Hind, who had been in role for three years, which is a long time in TV terms. Ever so slightly, um, yes. And Wendy Padbury, who'd, do, who'd done a superb job. And we've just seen Mind Robert see how, how well she does that. She, she really, really does a good job. Oh, Ignore the console. What an actress. Anyway. Uh, In other news. <laughs> but yes. Um, Damn we, boy. We have lost. Unfortunately, we have lost another producer. Us fanboying over three of his episodes are a nice way to commemorate his contribution to the TV series. So on that note, boys and girls, thank you very much as ever for listening. We hope you've enjoyed our drunken ramblings and our appreciation of Mr. Derek Sherwin. And if you haven't seen The War Games and you haven't seen The Mind Robber, do yourself a favour. The DVDs are cheap as chips. It's really well worth it. They're incredibly entertaining. Chin chin, old bean. Old fruity. Ta-ta. That was a bit goodness gracious <laughs> me. <laughs> The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rishton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions.
For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.